Show. My name is Cameron Riley, and with me, as always, is my tiny little midget friend. <laughs> and I am the ever-patient, humbled Ray Harris. How's that? Cold War, episode 97, Ray. We're nearly yep. at 100 episodes. Wow. Now, we did, we did 100 episodes of Augustus Caesar. Right. Told his entire life in 100 episodes. Yeah. Uh, we're barely we're barely out of World War Two. <laughs> After a hundred hours on the Cold War, what are we doing? Well, I you were the one that said when we were in Vegas, walking down the street, looking for uh, well, never mind what we were looking for. You said, "Hey, let's do the Cold War. That'll be our great story that will take us decades, and we'll have fun. And we could talk about everything." And I said, "Shit, yeah!" Mm. And then we went and had mm. breakfast. So it looks like that 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 prediction is coming true. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, all right. In June of 1919, as world leaders gathered in Paris to discuss how the world was going to stitch itself back together after World War One, how they were going to maintain the peace for the rest of human history. Oh, yeah, this is it. After the war to end all wars. <clears throat> A 29-year-old man from Vietnam tried to present to the world leaders that had gathered in the city of Paris a petition that he and a couple of his colleagues had drafted called The Demands of the Vietnamese People. Mm -hmm. Good for him. In particular, he wanted to get to Woodrow Wilson, the American president at the time who was taking centre stage at the Paris Peace Conference, who had drafted his 14 points, which talked about self-determination for all freedom-loving peoples of the world. And this 29-year-old man from Vietnam said, we are people. <laughs> we, we, we surely, are. surely, Woodrow Wilson thinks we're people too. The, um, his petition said, all subject peoples are filled with hope by the prospect that an era of right and justice is opening to them in the struggle of civilization against barbarism. Aha. Uh-huh. It then listed eight demands for the French overlords of Vietnam, including... Vietnamese representation in the French Parliament, freedom of the press, the right of free association in Vietnam, freedom of emigration and foreign travel, and the establishment of rule of law instead of rule by decree. Now, these seem like reasonable things, Ray. Mm, yeah, except for World War I wasn't about... Uh Fucking freedom for people. It, it was uh, economics. It was based on um, getting in while the, before the other guy got you. And, of course, everybody still can. This is the height of the time of empires. Empires are not going anywhere. He, Wilson can have his 14 points, but he's an American. He's not going to be involved in this very soon. 
this is not going to go well, but you can't help but blame this guy for not getting for getting excited about Wilson's arrival and his declaration that all people should be free. Mm. I don't think Wilson included the peoples of <laughs> Puerto Rico and Hawaii no. and the no for the, <laughs> the, the California, Texas, Utah, the states formerly known as Mexico. Right. What about those, Woodrow? Shut shut the shut. fuck up. Don't be a smart ass, Riley, he said when I brought that up. That's what's not a we don't have an empire because we just call it America. So it's different. Oh, uh, we took tear. it over. Right. It's right. not. They're not colonial possessions. They're we lucky. We took them over. They're fortunate. It's very different. Right. Yeah. yeah. The petition that the Vietnamese man drafted and tried to hand out to Woodrow Wilson and others was signed by him for the group of Vietnamese patriots Nien I Quo. Okay. Now, Quo. Uh, had rented a morning coat for the occasion in order to look more <clears throat> Western right, and not as poor as he was because he was very, very poor at the right. time. But, of course, he never got anywhere near Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson probably never even saw the petition, certainly didn't reply to it, although it did get into the hands of one of the uh, American uh, uh, staff that was there with him, but they, they, they ignored it, of course. They probably Even said, thank though, you for the toilet paper. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Even though, uh, you know, during the war, Wilson had talked in very sweeping terms about the self-determination of people. But when he said people, right, <laughs> I think he meant right. a, a particular kind of people. Certain uh, shade. Certain, certain shade certain, of people. Certain shade of people, yeah. I, I look. I'm not saying that Woodrow Wilson was a racist. No, no, but, no, no. And I'm not even. I'm not even being <laughs> smartass. <laughs> like there was, there was, there was the thinking at the time, and this lasted for a long time. That that people of n- non-white shades of skin. Good one. Didn't really have didn't really have the the ability to self govern in a civilized way. They were inferior, um, and so they weren't thinking about Vietnam places like that when they wrote this. Now, you know they 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 weren't really prepared at the Paris Peace Conference to think about. Questions of, of colonial possessions. Right. That really wasn't what it was about. It was about sorting out peace for Europe, you know, not the, the, the colonies of those countries from Europe. Those, those colonies might achieve independence one day, but it wouldn't be straight away, and it certainly wouldn't be without a civilised power teaching them how ah. to be civilised and, and govern themselves... Right. Mansplaining <laughs> self government to them, right? As a what? You know, like because there's only one way of governing a country, and that's the white man's way, right? <laughs> I think we all know that. As white men, we understand. <laughs> oh, it's the name of a band. Um, what about what the? About, 
Go ahead. Sorry. So I was going to say, one of our new fans, a lady, um, uh, Alice, uh, uh, wrote us a message that I just replied to before, and she said, listen, I love the Caesar show, but can you do some big series on ancient women? And I said, no, I can't, <laughs> Alice, because... <laughs> they weren't allowed. Because right? we're men. And, no. I said, listen, I'd love to, but the unfortunate yeah. truth is... Show me some books. Uh, a, women weren't allowed to do much, and B, the ones who did go, fuck you, I'm going to do it anyway, no one really wrote down anything about them because they were women. And and even like, you know, your Cleopatras and those sorts of things, unless the only, the only recording of them in history is when they interacted with a famous man. Then they went, oh, okay, well, we better write right. her down oh. then, but uh, that's pretty much Side it. Note. People say to me, Footnote. do it, do a series of Cleopatra. I go, we know like four sentences. There's like four <laughs> sentences about Cleopatra in all of, uh, you know, historical writing. Uh, right. Now that's enough for Ray to do an entire, oh, you yeah. know, three hours I could hours stretch of, that out. Of, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, getting back to Nien Aikwa, now, um, the, the, the politicians there ignored him, but one group that did pay attention to him was the Sûreté Générale, Uh-oh. the French security police. They went, who is this fucking darky? Let's, what? uh, no. ye- no. yellowy. I don't know what their racist term would have been for him. Not whitey, but okay. Yeah. 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 They began, uh, tailing him confiscating letters and articles that he wrote, tried to figure out who he was. And that's what we're going to do over the next three episodes of the Cold War show, is we're going to figure out who Nien Ai Kuo really was. And it didn't matter, I was just going to say real quick, it didn't matter that thousands of uh, Vietnamese fought and died for France in Europe in World War One, but yeah, it doesn't matter. That's not what they're, the European leaders are there for. They're certainly not going to focus on the colonies. This is about Europe, like you said, but this guy's life was absolutely amazing to me. And, and if I could real quick, he represents one of the main lessons that we've been trying to get through on all of our shows, that he was a very complex man. And that uh, he was multifaceted. Uh, he he it was not very easy to tie him down. And because humans are the drivers of history, history is also complex. He's been called a communist. He's been called a nationalist. Uh, you know exactly who was he? But if you think about his situation, he's in Vietnam. There's he's surrounded by giants: France, China, Britain, the United States, and Japan. How in the hell is he actually going to? one day achieve a goal of independence for his country when he's um, surrounded by these people and is by walking very fine lines with all these different nations all at the same time. So he is multifaceted and he gets accused of being insincere. But uh, by the time we're done, you will not doubt his love for his country because of everything that he had to go through to try to help his fellow man, his fellow countrymen. You're just trying to get all of your notes out in one <laughs> I'm done. So you can just and I'll see you next week, Cam. I'll see. <laughs> no, I just thought he was great because he was so I, complex. Yeah, okay. But that's what... I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to tell a story here. You don't okay. need to just throw it all out there on the table at once. We're trying to slowly, all right. You know, knit together a picture. Roll it out. You're just, okay. You're just readers digesting this shit here. Like, calm no, down. I just... No, no wonder Heather complains to me that you come in the first like ten seconds. It's just like. 
Take your time, Ray. Slow it down. <laughs> Ten seconds is taking my time. <laughs> <laughs> I could have been out of there in 10 seconds. But no, I thought about her. <laughs> you could have been out of there in three seconds. That's right. You took the extra Zip. seven seconds. <laughs> Just for her. I'm a considerate yeah. lover. Anyway. So, the French security police start to put together a picture of this guy. They found out that he uh, was from a province in uh, French Indochina, as it was then known, called Ne'an. It was on the coast of north-central Vietnam. And uh, he had been abroad for several years, spending a lot of his time in London before coming to Paris. He had a wide circle of acquaintances in the uh, Vietnamese uh, expat community in Paris. There was a lot of them uh, there at the time. Um, he hung around with intellectuals as well as workers, factory workers, um, soldiers who had been conscripted during the war. He maintained contacts with Irish and Korean nationalists who had come to Paris to lobby the great powers for their own independence. To pay the bills, he had a job as a photo retoucher. <laughs> right. Taking black and white photos and, and colorizing them, which was kind of fashionable at the time, and would take freelance journalism assignments whenever he could get them. He was quite a prolific writer. Um, But little did anyone at the time foresee that he would become one of the most famous men of the 20th century, one of the great revolutionaries of the 20th century and of world history, and that by the end of the 20th century, his face would be more recognisable to more people than that of Woodrow Wilson or anyone else who was at the 1919 (laughs) Peace Conference. Right. Let me ask you real quick, real quick, based on everything you just said, how well is he known, how well is his life known in Australia? Because I can assure you, to a certain degree, it's not that well known in the United States and for all of his accomplishments. And I was just curious about Australia. No, no one knows. Well, you know, I would say most of us don't know anything about him. I mean, we know his name. We know very high level, I guess, most people, what he did, his role in history, but we don't know anything about him. Right. And and I didn't know much about him and certainly not much about his early life until I started preparing for these shows. And um, hmm. I was fascinated, absolutely fascinated. And, of course, the man we are talking about, Nien Ai Kwa, which actually uh, means he who loves his country, wasn't the name he was born with. Um, and it's not the name that he died with. The name that he died with was uh, Vietnamese for he who enlightens. Ooh, I like and, that. And uh, we know him, history remembers him, of course, as Ho Chi Minh, he who enlightens. And how many names, and how many names did he have in between his first and last name? Uh, quite a few. Uh, he was born <laughs> Nien Tat Tan, uh, Nien who will succeed. No, that was the name his father gave him. That wasn't even the name he was born with. He was born Nien Sin Kun. Right. He was born in 1890. Then he, at the age of 10, his father gave him the name Nien Tat Tan, Nien who will succeed or Nien the accomplished. Um, and then he had Nien Ai Kwa and Ho Chi Minh. So I've got four names. Did you have more than four? 
Yeah, we'll see as we go through there. On his travels, he would pull a, was it Henry II or Henry IV or Henry II? He would pull a Henry II and dress oh, up yeah. and go around. But uh, no, he he is going, this guy was the first international a, jet setter before jets, and he had a name in each different region. It's fascinating that he would is, just master disguises. Well, yeah, he was he was wanted um, all over the world, so he, he, he had disguises <laughs> everywhere. He's like who's his Germanicus. Was I thought you were going to say he was putting. He's like <laughs> Germanicus. He was putting on Mark, uh, Groucho Marx masks, <laughs> glasses, and nose and mustache, and walking around. Um, yeah, so we're going to tell the story um, over the next few episodes. It's going to be probably the longest biography uh, that we've done. Um, so far on this series, um, normally we try and do the, the biographies of these guys quite quickly, but I want to take a time. We did three hours with the Castro um, obit, right. and I did that because I th- figured most people listening to this probably didn't know a lot about Castro. We kind of know who FDR and Churchill and Stalin and these guys were to a high degree anyway, but we don't really know much about Castro in the West, and I don't think we know much about Ho Chi Minh either. And, of course... The Vietnam War, Vietnamese War, is is going to be a huge part of telling the Cold War story. And I think it's incredibly important that we understand uh, the background to uh, French Indochina and the and the the fight for independence. So that's why we're going to take our time with this over the next few episodes because it's a yeah. hugely hugely important part of the Cold War. Because if anything, we do background. Cam, I just want to clarify that we, we focus on the background. <laughs> well, we. one of us does backgrounds and the other one mm. is along for the ride. But no, context is important. So off we go. So the French began their conquest of Vietnam in 1850. And uh, what was their justification for it, Ray? I'm assuming uh, the real one or the pretend one where they're bringing civilization to these backward, slightly yellow people. Well, the, pre- the yeah, no, the, the official one that they had, they gave at the time. It was really about protecting Catholics. Ah. So there had been uh, Catholic missionaries and Jesuit missionaries that had gone down to this region to try and uh, Catholicize, um, doing the usual Catholic priest things, uh, looking for children to <laughs> rape, and uh, in their spare time, uh, trying to convert people to Catholicism. <laughs> On days so off. they so they would uh, give money to the Vatican, and. Um, so there was, uh, and there was some people trying to shut that down. They were like, "Hey, stop raping our children, uh, you Catholics!" And uh, the French were like, oh, ha, ha, ha. "You do not tell uh, French Catholics not to rape children. We will uh, come down and invade you." So um, <clears throat> that there's going to be a lot of that in these episodes. Um, Good. We don't want to. We don't want to be uh, offensive to the Vietnamese in no. this, but we're not going to have no. l- long duck dong. Um, but we 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 are going to be offensive to the French. <laughs> here, 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 here. <laughs> so that was their official justification. Of right. course, it was really about economics, um, the, the 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 access to the natural resources of the area, 
and uh, access to markets and all the same stuff that we've always talked about in our episodes. The justification for colonialism was about building uh, economic empires. Yeah. Unfortunately, the uh, I'm sorry. The uh, unfortunately, the leader at the time, Duke Duke Duke. I'm not sure to say his name. Uh, he was young. He was ill. He was inexperienced. He wasn't able to handle the French, and so this is you know the French come in like you said in 1858. Uh, this is not going to go well, and pretty pretty soon the emperor is going to have to cede territory to them because they cannot stand up to the French uh, um, superior weaponry. Of course, yeah. Now, Indochina was also seen by the French as a potential entry point into China. It it could be a base where they could start to get their goods, their manufactured goods into China, open it up as a market, as we've talked about in earlier episodes in the 19th century. All of the major colonial powers and the United States were trying to figure out how to tap into China. Everyone understood that it was a huge potential market for their products, Um, even though the British had been systematically trying to get every single Chinese person addicted to opium. um, They were like, hey, well, yeah, people addicted to opium still need, you know, I don't know, shoes, food occasionally. Baguettes. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So they, they still saw it as a big market. And, of course... Having uh, colonial possessions in the eyes of the French at the time was going to increase their credibility on the world stage, uh, particularly uh, when they're dealing with their rival world powers like the like Great Britain, um, and it's going to stop Great Britain from laying claim to the territory. All these sorts of things are going on. The French Special Commission for Indochina in 1857 wrote. The political interest in this expedition arises from the force of circumstances propelling the Western nations toward the Far East. Are we to be the only ones who possess nothing in this area, while the English, the Dutch, the Spanish, and even the Russians establish themselves there? So they're like, hey, we want yeah. some we want some Asian booty too. <laughs> Everybody's doing it. Why aren't we? Yeah, exactly. So that was their mindset. And by 1884, the French had achieved complete colonial domination of Vietnam. Right. Then they were like, well, we're here now. (laughs) We might as well add Cambodia and Laos to it as well. So they they put all of that together and called it French Indochina. In for a penny, in for a pound. Or a sou, whatever the French use. I don't know. Sue, what, what's their denomination currency? What am I thinking of? Arrows now. Back, Back then, then I, I don't know. Me so now you're right, though, that to the the people back home in France, the, the non politicians. They probably saw it as um, a, a noble mission, civilizing the barbarians. Mm-hmm. Uh, mission civilisatrice, I think the French called it. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's the white man's burden, as right. Rudyard Kipling called it. Poor white man, we need to go out there and uh, civilise these darkies. But hey, Jesus. we're up for it. Yes, we're going to take their shit while we're there. Yeah. Uh, 
but uh, we're there to civilise them and teach them about Jesus. <laughs> um, because their primitive religions don't make any sense. Our primitive religion that involves <laughs> the idea of uh, a, a human sacrifice <laughs> right, a to an angel. Right. Uh, the, a human sacrifice of, um, uh, of, of a god to himself, himself. Mm-hmm. in order to get himself to forgive people <laughs> for committing sins, which means doing things that anger him, even though the vast majority of those people have never even heard of him. Doesn't matter. Uh, at the time of the human sacrifice, let alone what his demands were, makes complete sense. <laughs> Uh, completely logical, and uh, we're going to go out and if you know, kill them until they start to listen to our completely sensible religion. But they didn't want to. They didn't want to. They didn't want to yeah. civilize them too much, Ray. No, now we're I, not. Well, look, I don't know if you know this, but when mm-hmm. when you're out there civilizing the darkies, right? It's important that you civilize them a little bit. Um, just enough so they can work in your factories. Right. But you don't want to civilise them too much because then they might start wanting democracy um, or they might start wanting to develop their own industrial capacity, ah, which might okay. end up competing with the manufacturing industries back in France. So... It, there's, there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a balance of how much civilizing of the darky that you really want right. to do. Just remember that the right. next time you go out to colonialize people, um, when you get you have the book that you take out, which they obviously can't read because they're barbarians. But the 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 book once you teach them to read mm-hmm. uh, your language. Um, and you have the book, which is the guide to civilizing the darky. Um, you only want to keep the first two chapters, uh, <laughs> and you want to tear out the rest of the chapters because you don't want them to get too leave civilized. Not good leave for them, them hanging. No, not good. Not good for the darkies to let them get too civilized. They wouldn't well, know what to do with it. Quite honestly, <laughs> they would fuck it up if they got too civilized. You don't want them to get any education beyond. How to read the sign on the wall that says, Why listen to me? the. Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Do not yes. enter whites only. Whites only. Go around yeah. the back. Yeah. That's all. That's all they need. Um, I was I was watching, a, um, believe it or not, a YouTube video on Ho, uh, Ho Chi Minh and uh-huh. just the amount of wealth from like 1860 to 1900 coming out of Vietnam between the rubber and the rice. And I think 10 just staggering amounts of wealth was coming out, obviously going back to uh, France. And these people aren't, not only are they not getting anything, like you said, they're being kept down they're being persecuted. They're being uh, beaten or whatever if they get out of line, but just again, just vast amounts of wealth are being taken from this land. Everybody's doing it. So like you said, the French have got to do it too, but it's just staggering that what that, that, those amounts could have met to those people over the decades that they were being oppressed. Um, so Ho Chi Minh, born in 1890 in Nian, uh, and he was christened Nien Thin Kong. Right, his milk name. His, his father was a Confucian scholar and teacher, later ended up serving as some sort of imperial magistrate for a while. Right, um, 
and taught him to taught young Nian uh, to uh, your young Kung to be um, very well versed, obviously, in Confucian philosophy. Now, this is very important because this forms a large part of his vision for mm-hmm. his country. Confucianism. Do you know much about Confucius and Confucianism, Ray? Is that part of your uh, standard American education? You learn a lot about Confucius? <laughs> Believe it or not, no, it's not. Uh, Confucius, yeah, just this entire philosophy that these people had to learn learn if they were going to go up the administrative ladder. But no, I guess it was a philosophy about everybody's proper role in society coming together, and I'm sure there was... a. Uh, a lot more to it than that, um, but that's the Reader's Digest version. Version. Did you do any background research on Confucius while you were uh, preparing for this episode, knowing that I would uh, ask you questions about it? No. Did you prepare it all? Comes up all the time talking about Ho Chi Minh, Confucianism. Did you do any any background? Because you do background. You said we do background before. Tell me how much right. background did you do on Confucius? Not as much as I should have. Mm. Uh, any yeah. at all? Anything? Can you tell me when he lived, roughly, Confucius? Oh, God. Um, a long time ago in a land far, far away. No, that's Star Wars. Confucius, Chinese philosopher, uh, lived, we estimate, 551 to 479 BCE. So 500 years before Jesus. <laughs> Um, and he himself apparently considered himself the retransmitter of the theology and values that he inherited from the Shang and Zhu dynasties that go back to sort of the second millennia BCE. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the, the philosophy of Confucius is really, uh, you know, with, without wanting to oversimplify it, and, and I'm certainly not an expert, but I've had an interest in it my whole life. Um, it's, it's about the, the central belief that human beings are fundamentally good, mm. teachable, um, perfectible through hard work, self-cultivation, self-creation, um, Practice, being benevolent, um, working together, being righteous, doing good works. Um, now, you, you counterpoint that to the, the core tenets of Christianity, which is that people are all sinners right. and need to beg their <laughs> God for forgiveness on a daily basis. That sounds very, right. very, very, very different <laughs> worldviews. Mm-hmm. Um Confucianism um, still a very you know major religion in in the world. I don't know exactly how many adherents it has, but it's it's still relatively sizable uh, across Asia. So this this is uh, what the early part of Ho Chi Minh's life is about studying how to be how to be ethical how to be moral, how to be righteous, how to, how to be a good person and how to live together with other ah. people in harmony. Meanwhile, his country is being oppressed by the, the French, um, the Catholics. I, I, just, I just want to ask real quick. So they study the Confucius uh, sayings, teachings, the philosophy, and so if they study those, they will be decent human beings, and those are the people that you want in government, in charge, 
making decisions. That's very strange to me. That's very alien. Having good people in politics? Good people, good people who have learned values Mm. in government. Yeah, no, very bad concept. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, By the way, uh, the golden rule, do unto others, um, is found in Confucianism. So, Mm. you know, 500 years before Jesus, Confucius was saying something like that. Uh, It's called uh, Re in Chinese, I think. Uh, Which tone? There's four tones. Yeah, that's the tone. Um, based on my one year of Mandarin that I did 30 years ago. Um, Confucius said, one should see nothing improper, hear nothing improper, say nothing improper, and do nothing improper, which I think I'm is out. Donald Trump's uh, personal what? philosophy as well. His mantra. Anyway, back to back to young uh, Nian Sing uh, Kong. Uh, so uh, uh, at the age of 10, his father gave him the name Nian Tat Tan, Nian, who will succeed. His father also got um, demoted in his imperial uh, function at some point around here for some sort of abuse of power after a, sort of an influential local figure died after receiving 102 strokes of a cane yeah. uh, as punishment. Now, whether or not uh, – it's hard to imagine that Ho's father, you know, uh, gave this order willingly, seeing as he was a Confucian scholar. Right. It's not really very Confucian to uh, whip somebody to death. So we don't, the whole story here is a little bit uh, – maybe he was, maybe was just a psychopath, but it doesn't seem yeah. that way. Something right. happened anyway. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, apparently this, this might have been one of the turning points for Ho when his father got mistreated by the French. He was like, fuck you, French, I'm going to get you if it's the last yeah. thing I do. If I, if I could just interject for a second, because I was, when I was reading this guy's book, uh, his, his bio, I, I don't think we can over-appreciate, because um, we can just say in a single sentence, he grew up in a place where the people from the very country were second-class citizens and just keep on going. But if you think about everything he probably saw, maybe the first 10, 12 years of his life, I mean, they were literally second-class citizens. They were oppressed. Even the highest among them probably had to bow or do whatever they do to uh, to French officials as they walk by. I mean, just to be immersed in a place where it's your country, all the people that look like you have to... Uh, kowtow to these people. I mean, it had to affect his mentality, his outlook growing up, just to know that they were being cheated from, from day one, that someone else was literally their master that had life and death power over them. I mean, that, that had to affect his upbringing. And now that, now that it's happened to his father, I mean, he's got that that's got to affect him in some kind of way, no matter how much he studies Confucius. Yeah. I mean, it, it's important 
to really, I guess, drive home how bad the lot of the Vietnamese people was in the early 20th century. Um, they, they weren't allowed to get an education. Well, very, 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 very small percentage of them got any education under the French. Right. Um, no, no political involvement uh, in how things are run, no access no to health care, no, yeah, right. not allowed to leave, no freedom, all the stuff that uh, we said he put in his petition. So yeah. they were treated very, very badly. Now, I want you to remember, like um, we've we've talked on the series about the the British and their treatment of the like the Indian people and some of their other colonies, and we've talked about the the the, the criticisms levelled at uh, the the Germans and the Japanese in uh, and the Italians in World War Two when they were trying to uh, go grab some colonial possessions. Um, so they could compete economically. We've talked about the criticisms leveled at the Soviets, um, but you know it's it's important to understand. I think, and this is something that sort of is omitted from our edu- education in the West. To a large degree, it gets touched on these days. I think, but we don't really spend a lot of time on it. The the major civilized countries. Uh, the British, the French, etc., treated their subject peoples appallingly during mm-hmm. this period, literally like they were animals. And, of course, in the United States, very large pockets of the United States treated your African-American population and your Native American population in the same way. Right. Um, maybe not quite as bad, maybe, but pretty much 98% as bad. Well, um, we made up for it during the war on drugs with all the unfair laws. So we, we did our part. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so it's important to understand how bad it really was for the Vietnamese people. You're right. Now, um, his father sent uh, Nen uh, Tan. Oh, fuck it. We're just going to call him Ho. Let's just call yeah, him Ho. Think- He's not called Ho, but let's just call but- him Ho. But there is, a drink, there is a drinking game involved. Every time he does have a new name, we'll let you know there's a change. We're going to keep calling him Ho, but, but it will be time to drink. Okay. Yeah. What are you drinking? I'll, I'll have to go get something. <laughs> Just water for now. Oh, okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he, he sends Ho, the father sends Ho to a prestigious French school because he's got, he's, he's got a little bit of um, uh, leverage, the father. He's, yeah. he's, you know, he's, he's working for the man. Sends him to a <clears throat> prestigious French school, uh, in Hai. Um, it was known as basically the High School for the Gifted. He goes there in 1908. So the, the important thing about this is to know that from a very early age, Ho was recognised as being very, very intelligent. And a hard worker. Very intelligent and a hard worker. Yeah, these are like two of the defining characteristics of Ho that you'll see as we go through. He was, he was a smart motherfucker from the get-go. <laughs> so he goes to, he goes to this um, school for the gifted um, as a as a child, I mean, nineteen oh eight. He's like eighteen here, right? So, but he gets to go to this school. Um, that it used to be believed that he got expelled the same year. There was this um, protest uh, supporting peasants who were protesting sort of agricultural taxes and corvée labour. Do you know what corvée labour is, Ray? 
Uh, no, forced labor. What is it? Corvée labor. C o r v e e. Corvée labor. It's um, unpaid labor, um, but it, so it's kind of like temporary slavery. It, it, it mm. lasts for limited periods of time. Goes right back to the Romans. In fact, back in ancient Rome, uh, if you had unpaid taxes, you could be made to work. Uh, it's a bit like uh, a work for the doll, work for the doll program, right? You, you had to go and work for a period of time, week, month, couple of months to pay off your debt. Mm-hmm. Um, but during different periods of human society, if uh, you had a, a landlord that owned a lot of property and they gave you some of that property, like you got your own little farm, uh, in, in lieu of paying rent for that, you had to go and work the landlord's property. So during harvest season, you had to go as forced labour, work for free right. for the landlord, um, but but then the rest of the year you got to live in your little house, that kind of stuff. Um, so there was this there was this protest at the high school in 1908 around this. Um, the story used to be that uh, Ho was expelled from the school for participating in that. But we have recent evidence that shows that he actually joined the school after the protest. So that that, that ah. part of the mythology of Ho doesn't stand up to the evidence. Anyway, he did leave the school uh, not long after that anyway in order to travel the world. So he ends up working as a kitchen helper on a French steamer, <laughs> which eventually took him to right. Marseille in 1911. Gets to Marseille, he applies to the French Colonial Administrative School, the place where good little Frenchmen learned how to be good little colonialists, um, which isn't what you'd expect, I guess, from the 20th century's most successful revolutionary. Um, but there, there are complicated, complicated reasons why he might have done this. Can you explain them to me, Ray? Well, I would imagine that um, he's going to be forthright with these people and tell them that he wants to become educated and help France receive an education so he can help this his adopted country, the country that he has fast, been fascinated with ever since he was a child. So you think he applied to the school in order to end colonialism in his country? Well, no, I, th- I thought he uh, wrote a letter saying he wanted to help France and receive an education when he went to the yes. colonial school, petitioning as an intern, as a student. Yes, right. But why? Why would a f- future revolutionary try to become a colonial overlord? Well, I remember that he was talking to people before he left Vietnam that he was saying. I have to learn how France works. I've read their language. I understand a little bit of their culture, but I need to know how France works so I can actually figure out the beast in order to defeat the beast and get them out of my country. He's literally trying to figure out how French society works in order to defeat it from the inside. Yeah, no, that could be that could be one explanation. Maybe he's still just young and his political views aren't really formed at that stage. I read that part of him admired the French ideals of liberté, égalité, et fraternité, but um, he wanted to see how they combined those with simultaneously oppressing his country. (laughs) Anyway, his application to the school was rejected, 
they they only had twenty scholarships for what they called indigenous students uh, every year, and he didn't get one of those. So he decided instead to begin traveling the world working on ships and visiting as many countries as possible to give himself a, uh, a broad education. And for the next five or six years, that's what he does. He travels the world. Um, he got a job working as a cook's helper on a ship in 1912, which took him to the United States. What did he do while he was there, Ray? What didn't he do? I, I consider consider this the Forrest Gump phase of his life. I mean, this guy's going to travel the world. He's going to go to Boston. He's going to go to New York. He's going to the, go to the Caribbean, Africa, Asia. But the point is, he seems to have done everything. At one point, he was working for a sous chef. I think in Boston, he's been to New York. Um, he, he just traveled all over the place, uh, gathering experiences, trying to earn money, but just basically seeing the world and trying to learn something outside of Vietnam so he could one day go back and try to help his country. But I just I was just staggered by the places that he went, the people that he met, and all the various jobs that he had. You don't want to talk about them in detail? You don't want to touch on some of the things that he did? Because I thought that was no, interesting. No, please go ahead. Well, when he was in uh, the United States, he worked uh, as a baker at the Parker House Hotel, which I'd never heard of, but apparently it is the longest continuously operating hotel in the United States. Uh, It's in Boston. It's the place where JFK announced his candidacy for Congress in 1946. Uh, It's a place where a guy called Malcolm Little worked as a busboy in the 1940s. He later on changed his last name to X. Um... And uh, Ho worked there as well. And he had a series of other jobs, claimed at one stage he worked for a wealthy family in Brooklyn, um, sort of as just a, you know, servant, I guess, in the house. Uh, He worked for General Motors as a line manager. Uh, While he was also there, he made contact with Korean nationalists and, and started developing his political outlook. He also attended meetings of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, which was uh, run by the famous black nationalist leader Marcus Garvey, uh, who was one of the uh, sort of original black uh, revolutionaries in the US, 20th century revolutionaries. And, you know, Ho later said that he was kind of saddened um, by his experience in the United States. Um, You know, he had had read all of these idealistic principles that America claimed to have about freedom and democracy, but then he got there and saw for himself that blacks were segregated, um, there was blatant discrimination in all areas of public life, there was lynching going on in different parts of the country. But when he walked through Chinatown, he saw that Asian immigrants at least appeared to have equal rights under the law, if not in fact. So it was um, there were some good things and some bad things about his experience in America. Then he went to London, where he studied English from an Italian, as you do. <laughs> Um, and he was a he was a he was a polyglot ho. He ended up being fluent in English, French, Russian, and Chinese, Damn. as well as his own language. Um, 
but you know he did spend a lot of his life as we'll see uh living in all of these different countries so i guess uh not that hard to become multilingual when you live large parts of your life in these countries right. but um he was again but also he was just a he was a very very smart guy um very capable in england he first got work as a snow sweeper at a school mm. then as a boiler operator and then as a pastry chef <laughs> Because if there's one thing you want to know when you're a guerrilla leader, right. it's how to cook a pastry. Well, you, got, um, you got to get it just right, though. You got to you got to feed the troops. It's I, absolutely critical. I did want to ask one real quick, um, because I didn't know much about this guy when I first started reading about him. I think it's very important to keep in mind that this guy is not. A warrior. This guy is not out trying to learn how to all the different things about guns and how to work guns and buy guns and stuff, whatever. He's not. He's not entering knife contests and he's not learning um, how to kill people. This guy is literally going around, gathering information, learning different cultures, like you said, learning different languages. He's got to work his way through because he's poor, and you just really get the sense that he's like, all I'm trying to do is find whatever the secret formula is. To be able to go home one day and help my people, this this guy is not some radical um, or militant or anything. He is literally just trying to figure out how the West works so then he can go home and try to deconstruct what the French have done to his country. And, and I, I just find all these travels and all of his experiences absolutely fascinating. Yeah, he's not he's not a soldier in the young right. part of his life. You're right. I mean, he's he's not really anything. He He's not... He's not a lawyer like Fidel Castro was. Mm-hmm. He's not a doctor like uh, Che Guevara. He's um, he's just a journeyman. He's he's traveling. He's trying to get his head around it. Would you very, even very smart? Right. Would you even would you even call him a revolutionary at this point? Not at this point. No. Yeah. But he's starting to develop his revolutionary ideas. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, like in America, uh, when he's in London, he is shocked to see f- firsthand uh, how the British were treating the Irish right, um, and the other British colonies like India. I guess he gets to see more about their, their, their thoughts and their ideas on the Indians. And he, he recognised the disconnect between theory and practice with the English. Again, like the Americans... They talked about democracy, but at the same time practiced discrimination and colonialism. They talk one thing, sell one thing, but at the same time, they don't, you know, again, as I said before, and I'm not trying to be funny, they honestly didn't see these, uh, the, the, the people who lived in their colonies as really full ranking members of the human race. Absolutely. They that they saw their colonial subjects a bit like ICU, like um, kind of human, um, human, but not not really ready to take control of anything. Like if I said, Ray, the next three episodes are on you. Uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna sit here right. as I did do on one of our shows not so long ago. Over to you, Ray. We all know what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's going to be long, long silence. And 
you would not feel the slightest amount of shame or humiliation it's, over that. You'd be I'm, like, that's just how I'm it is. Just, I'm just not built for shame. You've, I, you've, you've, you've so fully integrated the three illusions. <laughs> I really and have. And you're like, tis what it is, man. Yeah, it's I didn't do illusion. any work. I'm just a I wave on the ocean. Yeah. That's right. no, it's, a be- no, it's a beautiful thing. No, but you're absolutely right. I mean, again, that's another thing we have to wrap our heads around. One, he, he lived in a place where he saw his people oppressed. He's, uh, he's absolutely poor at this point. He's a blank, blank, blank slate trying to fill himself in with all these experiences. And the white people literally do not see them as humans, as other white peoples. And so it's not a big deal to them. And these are things that he is trying to figure out and figure out how to combat. So, uh, yeah, he starts, again, when he's in England, he starts to get involved in uh, a little bit more uh, hanging out in political circles. Uh, You know, he meets some Irish uh, uh, revolutionaries. And then he ends up going back to Paris. And then while he's in Paris, he he gets deeply involved in uh, politics while he's there particularly with anti-colonial nationalists from all around the world, not just Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. He ends up sitting in on, somebody invites him to sit in on meetings of the French Socialist Party. And uh, this is where he is in Paris when he drafts the petition for the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. Now, you know, for, for many Asian intellectuals, as I hinted at before, sort of socialist theory was something that was very familiar to them because it fit in with Confucianist ideas. Uh, it was, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot more similarities between socialism and Confucianism than there is between socialism and sort of Christian capitalist ethic. Right. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the ideas of Marx are closer to the ideas of Confucius than they are to... I don't know, Adam Smith or John Stuart Mill, guys that were talking about materialism and individualism. Uh, Confucianism is more about community effort, simplicity of lifestyle, uh, equalization of wealth and opportunity, uh, very, very similar to Marx and Engels' view of socialism and communism. Um, you know, greed, self-aggrandizement uh, are seen as being distasteful in, in Confucianism uh. as they are in communism and socialism. So very easy for people from uh, of, of countries that had a big background in Confucius, like China and Vietnam in particular, to, to connect with um, the ideas of Marx. So... He gets involved in the uh, French socialist circles very early on when he gets back to France. Yeah, and, and by this time he's in his late twenties, and and um, even though he's very well educated, he's learning a lot of languages. This guy is an absolute sponge. He is reading everything he can get his hands on: Shakespeare, Dickens, Victor Hugo, Emilia Zola, Tolstoy. He's doing all these odd jobs. He's moving around. He has got this just this wealth of experience and knowledge. And he's going to, like you said, he's, he's, he's hanging out with the French Socialist Party, and he's even going to take it to the next step 
um, j- just, I don't want to get too far ahead, but in the summer of 1919, he forms a new organization for the Vietnamese living in France. I think there's about 50,000 of them at the time. So he, he went from being very shy to hardly ever speaking to starting to make speeches. He's, he's starting to write, and now he's taking the next step, becoming more active. He's going to start his own political organization for his people who are in France. Yeah, yeah, and as you say, there are 50,000 Vietnamese in France at the time. Most of them are working menial jobs. They're in factories, that kind of stuff, servants uh, working for wealthy families. Um, But there are some, a few hundred maybe, children of wealthy families that had gone there to study. They'd been sent there to get a good education. And Mm -hmm. there's sort of this intellectual community in France uh, still at the time after World War I, um, sort of a, the, the um, continuation of the cafe culture from the 19th century um, and the 18th century, right? It's where a lot of the, the, the salon cultures is where a lot of the revolutionary right. ideas had come out of um, in the late 18th century. And uh, that, that's still going on in France and, and intellectuals like Ho uh, are getting involved in that. And they're, they're talking about ideas, Basically, they were the podcasts of the day. Um, you know, I the think cool of people. our show. Well, this is really like a, an 18th century Parisian salon. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we sit around and we talk about in big ideas. We're an intellectual show. I don't know if people realise that because we, we have true. a lot of dick jokes. But uh, really... This is an intellectual show for intellectuals. And yes. if you're listening to this, congratulations. Yes. You are listening to intellectuals. No, I was going to say, congratulations, you're an intellectual. You're listening to one intellectual and Ray. A limoncello um, drinker. Yeah. 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 Uh, my little buddy. I do. Um <laughs> I did want to ask, I know we're about we're about to end, but um when you were reading this book or the, his his bios or whatever, and I know you've read about Lenin, and I know you've read about Stalin and other people. Did you get a little bit jealous? I mean, this guy's traveling the world. He's talking about ideas. He's having all of these experiences, and he, like you said, he's sitting around with his people, and they're exchanging all ideas. It's all it's all theory. They're they're literally trying to think of different ways to improve the human condition. I I just thought it would have been very exciting, except for the parts where he's starving to death, um, because this guy was only like a hundred pounds. But I thought it was very it would have been very exciting to have his experiences. Uh, just traveling the world and talking to all these people. And he is going to meet a lot of very famous and more, more importantly, uh, important people in his travels. I just thought it must have been cool to be him. Yeah, well, I think that's how people feel about you, Ray. They're like, mm, it's so cool. You get to talk to Cam every week. You're so lucky. He, uh, lucky duck. Now, he, he got back to Paris in 1917. What else happened? What was another big event that happened in 1917, Ray? Besides the end of the war? No, it's more like 1918, I think. But okay, uh, what else happened in 1917? The Russian Revolution? Yeah. So, you know, these French socialists are sitting around and there had just been, and it was still ongoing, really, the the first successful socialist revolution in history. It's fresh, fresh out the oven. 
they're like, holy shit, this this has just gone right. from for fifty years, this had just been theory. Right. That you could have a revolution of the proletariat overthrowing the bourgeoisie. Marx and Engels had written about it in the middle of the eighteenth century. Um, and late to, you know, 1860, 1870, here we are 50 years later, it's actually happening. Imagine like how exciting Mm -hmm. that must've been to these intellectuals that we've been talking about it, but these fucking guys in Russia just did it. They got off their asses. (laughs) They did it. They, oh, they, they killed the fucking uh, czar, czar, man, and yeah. his family. Yeah, I'm sorry. Except for Anastasia. She she, yeah. she escaped and, right. and keeps showing up. In Disney films. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's a very exciting time. Now, as you said, he, he then formed his first political organisation, the uh, Association des Patriotes Animate, the uh, Association of Animite... Patriots, Anamites, Ray. Um, uh, what's an Anamite? Is that is that some region in Vietnam? No, it's just another name for Vietnam. Anam, oh, okay. An, an, nam. Uh, Vietnam, An Am. Just another name <laughs> okay. for Vietnam. And they think he probably chose that because it was less politically charged ah. than Vietnam. Yeah, he is in France. Uh, the, yeah. the nationalists wanted you know, to be called Vietnam, not French Indochina, um, and they called it Anam, so maybe they were going to get less negative attention from the French police. But as you also said, he was painfully shy during this period. 29, uh, very, very shy, someone who knew him at the time, described him as a timid, almost humble young man, very gentle, avid for learning. And he spoke so little that they referred to him as the mute of Montmartre. <laughs> um, so not exactly someone right. you would look at and say, this guy is going to be the greatest <laughs> revolutionary of the 20th century. Uh, going to defeat not one, but two great powers, um, not exactly what you would expect looking yeah. at this guy. He's skinny, he's shy. Yeah. He, um, when he was Mumbler. When he got his first opportunity to give a speech at one of these meetings, um, he was so nervous that he stuttered all the way through it, but they gave him a round of applause anyway, and he was invited to speak again. He talked about you know the suffering of his people under... French colonialism. Um, and so he starts to build uh, uh, his political ideology uh, at this point. Um, he's nearly 30, living out of a suitcase, uh, right. going from shabby hotel to shabby hotel. Uh, reminds me a little bit of uh, um, uh, Henry uh, fucking... Um, Tropic of Cancer, Henry Miller, Henry Miller, who um, was probably also living in Montmartre at the time. Um, Just just absolute bones of his ass poverty. And, of course, (laughs) after uh, this 1919 uh, petition, he starts to get chased around by the French police as well. So, anyway, he wrote this thing in 1919, tried to hand it off to these uh, guys at the Paris Peace Conference, 
gets nowhere, but it does sort of get published as a pamphlet. It gets around. Yeah. And it starts to get attention. He, in fact, was invited to meet the Governor General of Indochina, Albert Seurat, who was a former French Prime Minister, was in Paris at the time. So Ho goes and meets Seurat, presents his eight demands that were in the petition. Mm-hmm. Seurat said, yeah, this is good, you know, good, good thinking. I'll, uh, good I'll, I'll, I'll look into this and uh, give us, just give us your address and your phone number. Ah. Don't have a phone. Okay, give us your address. What's your email? Don't have an email. Okay. Um, Skype, FaceTime, anything? No, no? Okay. nothing. Just give us your address and uh, we'll get we'll be in touch. And of course, by "we'll be in touch," he meant I will assign two French uh, <laughs> agents to follow you and keep an eye on you at all times. You scummy little darky revolutionary, um, which is what happened. But for me, I mean, his organization that he formed in December of 1919, I mean, it wasn't radical. It wasn't extreme. It wasn't calling for the heads of Frenchmen to be on pikes. He's just want, you know, just like, I just want my people to have better conditions. I want them to have a little bit more control over their own country. But to French ears, I'm sure that sounded quite radical. And yeah, now he's got two full-time buddies who are going to be following him around all the time. Yeah, I think representation in parliament, freedom of the press, the right to free association, freedom of immigration, foreign travel, rule of law. These were pretty radical things to, to the, the French, French in yeah. 1919 yeah. Yeah, for their colonial uh, subjects. Uh, Soror, the Governor-General, did later in the year propose a set of reforms okay. for Indochina, but they were mostly like, okay, we'll let another 12 of you get some education. You happy now? And Ho said, no, fuck you. Um, now, his um, activism at the time drew him to the attention of some famous French socialists, such as Leon Blum, Ooh. the... French socialist politician, three-time Prime Minister of France, who um, was one of the guys who opposed the Vichy government during World War II and for his troubles ended up in Buchenwald, a concentration camp. And uh, Jean Loquet, who was Karl Marx's grandson and a prominent French socialist, they uh, invited Ho to join them and come to the party's congress in uh, Tours in December of 1920. They were sort of having the big French socialist congress. I think it was like the 19th congress of the French socialists. And it was at this meeting where the French Communist Party was formed. Keep in mind that, again, the Russian Revolution just happened over the last couple of years. And they wanted to get on board the Bolshevik train. So they formed the French Communist Party. Um, and he joined that as well. He said, yep, I like the sound of that. <laughs> I want to be part of that. Right. He also gave a speech uh, against French colonialism. Uh, it was about 12 minutes long. It was delivered without notes. Part of it, he said, it is impossible for me in just a few minutes to demonstrate to you all the atrocities committed in Indochina by the bandits of capitalism. There are more prisons than schools, Mm. just like in America in the 21st century. And the prisons are always terribly overcrowded. Freedom of the press and opinion does not exist for us. 
nor does the freedom to unite or associate. We don't have the right to emigrate or travel abroad. We live in the blackest ignorance because we don't have the freedom of instruction. In Indochina, they do their best to intoxicate us with opium and brutalize us with alcohol. They kill many thousands of Vietnamese and massacre thousands of others to defend interests that are not theirs. That, comrades, is how 20 million Vietnamese, who represent more than half the population of France, are treated. Oh. By 12,000 French. So that's... Yeah. Yeah, by about 12,000 Frenchmen who controlled the entire country. Right. So that is where we're going to leave episode 97, our introduction, part one of our introduction to both Ho Chi Minh and also French Indochina, the conditions that the Vietnamese were living in in the early part of the 20th century. We'll be back next week with part two of Ho Chi Minh.